All right, let's get our Bibles out. Hebrews chapter 8. Don't forget kids and adults. Sermon notes over there on that table. Always helpful. Also, uh, I wanted to highlight this book in the bookstall before we get started on the sermon, uh, Who is Jesus? Uh, by Greg Gilbert. If you get uh, a Roman Catholic, a Mormon, an evangelical Christian, and uh, maybe even a Muslim together in the same room, and you ask them, do they believe in Jesus, they will all say yes. But they will all mean very different things when they say yes. Uh, I think this book is one of the shortest, easiest ways to understand the Bible's clear teaching on who Jesus is. And, and check this out. This little white tab here, it says free. Okay, we're just giving them away for free. This will be over on the bookstall. Uh, read it or give it to someone that you've been sharing the gospel with, trying to help them see Jesus more clearly. Okay. In uh, 2017, our family lived on Capitol Hill. Uh, we lived in an apartment that was roughly five blocks in front of the Capitol building. And on Saturday, January 21st of 2017, we walked outside of our apartment door to find the streets and the sidewalks completely flooded with sign-carrying, pink-hat-wearing protesters. It was the first National Women's March on Capitol Hill, and it was a sight to see. There were famous celebrity speakers like Scarlett Johansson, as well as soon-to-be famous political front-runners like Kamala Harris. And I remember going out to the sidewalk and looking down the street, and I just, just a horde of people, so thick. And it went as far as I could see to the left and as far as I could see to the right. And D.C. was not alone. Uh, national news coverage showed tens of thousands of women marching in Atlanta, New York, and Los Angeles. Uh, emotions were high, enthusiasm was at a fever pitch, and the spectacle was a grand spectacle. Last year, in 2019, the attendance of the Women's March was 100,000, down from the 500,000 in 2017. This year, in 2020, the attendance was less than 10,000. Now, some movements have real enduring power. Others tend to have an average lifespan equivalent to that of a housefly. Now, the question is, why do so many movements and revolutions start so strong, but then begin to fade so fast? Well, I think that there are a couple of reasons. Uh, many movements, even good movements, movements that we agree with, uh, tend to have a foundation of emotionalism rather than deep-seated conviction, and you can see how quickly that might fade, right? You see it in the life of the church. People come in, they're super excited, emotions flare, and then they die out when they see that the church is actually just, you know, part of the everyday rhythm of following God. Another reason that movements uh, fade is that they encounter resistance. This resistance can be organic, like it can be in the community, maybe where the resistance, uh, the movement is taking place, people just don't particularly want it to happen, or it could be more official resistance. It could be on behalf of the government. Maybe a better question is, what gives a movement staying power? So consider another grand spectacle, the March for Life. The first March for Life was held in 1987, and it had 10,000 
attendees. In 1995, the National Park Service estimated the turnout to be 30,000. In 2011, the March for Life in Washington, D.C. had 400,000 participants. And in 2013, the crowd grew to an estimated 650,000 participants. This was a record year, and record years don't usually last uh, in any field. So let's look at 2019, some 32 years after the first March for Life down the Capitol Mall the turnout was estimated between 200,000 and 300,000. And that was in the middle of one of the worst blizzards in a decade. Now, using these two movements, if you will, as an illustration uh, is not meant to communicate anything politically about the validity of the March for Life versus the Women's March. Uh, But it is meant to provide an interesting case study on movements and, and, and the staying power or the lack of staying power of certain movements. It was thought of the Christians in the early days of the church that these people who identified themselves as little Christs, it was thought that they were a movement that would flare up and then quickly die out. The authorities at first were not that concerned about them. Some offshoot of an already obscure religion called Judaism, it's probably not going to last. Don't worry about it. As the author of Hebrews writes this letter to the scattered Jewish background Christians suffering persecutions, he seems to be worried about this very thing. He seems to be concerned that all these people who professed faith in Christ, who were serious about following Jesus, are beginning to fade. You think about the story of the early church with me for a second. From Acts chapter 2, Moving forward, we see that the Lord had been working powerfully in the life of the church. Signs and wonders, the apostles taking the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea to the nations. I mean, it was amazing. The gospel was being preached. People were being saved. The poor were being fed. The church was being built. And all of this was in the face of tremendous opposition. The Christians of those earliest days, they seemed to have an unending supply of endurance You know, energy was high. The signs and the wonders were abundant. The community was strong. Everyone had everything in common. And if you didn't, you got killed by God. You know, things were just going really well, it seems. And, you know, the long-term effects of persecution hadn't begun to set in yet. Now, I'm not saying that the suffering that these early Christians experienced was easy. Suffering never is. But there did seem to be a kind of joy in the midst of suffering in those days that was just unshakable. These early Christians knew. They had so much confidence that they were suffering for something worthy, something that would bring along with it an eternal reward. But as time continued to pass, and as the suffering didn't abate, and as property was taken, as men and women were killed, as family members were put in jail, as communities were ravaged, Christians began to fall away. Like the Israelites who had been rescued from slavery in Egypt, who then looked back on that slavery and said, man, at least when we were slaves, we had food to eat. Some of these early Christians They began to look back on their lives as Jews and say, man, at least we weren't being killed all the day long. Yeah, life under the law was kind of oppressive, 
And I didn't enjoy having to go to the temple and offer those sacrifices for my sins. But at least the Roman government allowed me to worship freely as a Jew. This is what the author of Hebrews has in mind as he writes this letter. Like a good pastor, he knows their situation better than they do. So the question is, what is he going to write to encourage them? Look at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32 through 34. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. So what are you going to say, Mr author of Hebrews, like a good pastor, what are you going to do to help them persevere in the faith? Well, he's going to do what he's done throughout the whole letter. He's going to show them that Jesus has fulfilled everything in the Old Testament, all the shadows, all the promises, and he's going to remind them that Jesus is God's final word of salvation, and he's going to tell them that they need to listen to Jesus. He's going to give them some theology, and then he's going to give them some application. So for note takers this morning, those are going to be kind of the two big points, theology and application, but then there's going to be some subpoints under that. Let me pray, and then we will get into the body of the sermon. Father, help us to listen. Help us to have hearts that are soft and not hard. Help us to focus And we pray that your spirit would drive your truth deep down into our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, I hope that you've seen from my introduction that the theological content of chapters 8 through 10, which we did a great job reading through. You know, you did great. That was a long reading, but it seems like we made it. But, and it's, it's thick, it's dense, it's complex, But it's not merely an academic exercise. The author of Hebrews is not an ivory tower theologian sitting there with the patches on his jacket, writing in his leather chair in his office, smoking his pipe for other people who sit and smoke pipes in a leather chair in offices, right? He has a pastor's heart. He loves his people. And so as he writes about things like the tabernacle and the priesthood and the sacrificial system and the new covenant, he's doing so in light of these real issues that these people are facing. Now, you can see just how practical the author of Hebrews is in chapter 9, verse 5. Turn there with me. He says, Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Okay, so he's about to go on a rant about the cherubim. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Okay, rant avoided right? What we see happening here is that in the previous verses, he's talking about the way that the tabernacle was designed, and it was very intricate, and it's obvious that the author of Hebrews has a deep, deep knowledge of the Old Testament, so he's like telling them certain aspects about the tabernacle because it's useful, but then he seems like he begins to go down a rabbit trail and really get on into the the weeds of the details of how the tabernacle was set up, and then he stops and he goes, yeah, we don't really need to talk about that right now. That's not really pertinent. There's time for that later. So, um, in the same spirit, I'm going to try to not get off in the weeds of this morning's text. 
Uh, you remember when we walked through the book of Ephesians, it was like one, two, three verses at a time, sometimes 10, but a lot of just slowly working through the logic of the text. But in, as we've been walking through the book of Hebrews, we've been breaking, breaking the book up into very big chunks. And so this morning, chapters 8, 9, and 10 is a very big chunk. So I'm going to try to hit the high points of these chapters. Uh, so if you're wondering, Sean, how come you didn't touch on this verse or that verse. It's not because I'm avoiding it. It's just because I'm trying to give you the high notes, okay? Now, you'll remember that so far in the book of Hebrews, we've learned in chapters one and two that Jesus is greater than the angels. We learned in chapters three and four that Jesus is greater than Moses and the law. Then we saw in chapters five through seven last week that Jesus is greater than the priesthood. He is the fulfillment of the priesthood. He is our heavenly high priest. And this week, we are going to see that Jesus is greater than the old covenant sacrificial system. Now, in last week's sermon, we learned that there's no longer a need for earthly priests. So these Jewish Christians who are suffering persecution, considering going back to the temple, one of the things that the author of Hebrews is telling them is, you can go back to the temple, but those priests who were there, there's really no reason for them to be there because the priesthood no longer needs to exist because Jesus is our ultimate high priest. Well, the logic follows from that then, that if the priest whose job was to oversee the sacrifices and to take care of the tabernacle later, the temple, If the priest is no longer needed, then the things that he was responsible over are no longer needed. We no longer need a tabernacle or a temple. We no longer need the sacrificial system. Now, if you're coming from a Jewish background and somebody says, hey, we don't don't need the tabernacle or the temple and we don't need sacrifices anymore, you better have a good argument for why you're saying what you're saying because you're taking away the very heart of, of the Jewish faith, the atonement, God making a way for sinful man to be reconciled to his holy self, if you're going to say that that is being done away with, then you better have a good argument. And as it so happens, the author of Hebrews does have a good argument. So my three sub points for you for chapter, excuse me, for point number one are the tabernacle, the sacrifice, and the covenant. If you want to make longer notes, you can say Jesus is the fulfillment of the tabernacle, the sacrificial system, and the covenant. Subpoint number one, the tabernacle. Um, Long before God gave the law to his people, he dwelt with them in a garden. And the garden was a holy place because that's where God was. And that's, that's what happens when God inhabits a place. Because he is holy, that place becomes holy. You remember uh, Moses in the burning bush? God told Moses to take off his sandals because where he was standing was holy ground. Well, the reason why that ground was holy because that's where God was. Now, you know how the story goes. Uh, Adam and Eve sinned against God, and therefore they were cast out of his holy presence. Now, you fast forward the story a little bit and you come to Abraham. Genesis 12 tells us that God initiated a relationship with our father Abraham, the father of the nation of Israel. Now, this relationship was grounded in a promise. Listen to the words of this promise from Genesis 17. 
It says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after them. This is basically, uh, in so many words, I will be your God and you will be my people, right? He says the same thing a little bit later uh, after the slaves have been uh, suffering in Egypt and God rescues them. He says this in Exodus 6, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the Egyptians. Now, how do you know that this is true. So if you're an Israelite and you've heard stories about the promises that were made to Abraham, how do you know that this is true, that God really is going to be your God and that you really are going to be his people? Well, God makes his presence known amongst them. He manifests himself there with them. Primarily as they were traveling through the wilderness in a pillar, we read, and the Lord went, excuse me, as they were traveling through the wilderness, the Lord went with them in a pillar. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, Exodus 13, 21. And then the day came when God further established his relationship with his people. He gave them the law. He said, listen, if I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people, you have to follow me. You have to obey my will. You have to be holy as I am holy, so let me give you uh, a, a way to do that. Now, this law was kept in the Ark of the Covenant. Yes, the Ark of the Covenant, a real thing, not just something from Indiana Jones, okay? This was where God kept his holy law. Now, that Ark of the Covenant, stay with me, was kept in the tabernacle, the tabernacle or the tent of meeting. Uh, Honestly, you can just think about it like a really big tent. I don't know if you've ever been camping with people who like really do camping. You know what I'm saying? Well, I I don't know. Some people who really do camping, they don't even believe in tents. They just have like a really high-grade sleeping bag. Um, But, I mean, like, I'm talking the biggest tent you can possibly imagine with all the amenities. Tom Haverford, you know, you got a a frozen yogurt machine. You know, you got your uh, blow-up mattress, okay? That's the kind of tent that this tabernacle was. It was massive. And here's what you need to know about it. It was quite literally where heaven and earth made contact because God filled the tabernacle in order to have his presence among his people. Heaven and earth touch. It reminds me of uh, one of my favorite Disney movies as a kid, Peter Pan. You know, one of my favorite parts of Peter Pan was uh, when Wendy tried to sew the, I don't know if she did it or she tried to, but she went to go sew the shadow back onto Peter Pan. And do you remember where Uh, she started to sew it on at the feet, right? I remember after I watched that movie, I always used to go outside and look at myself in in the sunlight and the shadow, and I would always try to find my shadow, and I would always look down at my feet afterwards to make sure that the movie was right, and it always was, right? The, The point of contact between my shadow and my body was always my feet. Well, that is kind of what this was like. The contact point between a holy God and sinful man was there in this tabernacle. Now, as you can imagine, something as important as this, God would be very picky about the design of this tabernacle. And so in Exodus 25, you read, God tells Moses, he says, see that you make them according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. This is exactly what the author of Hebrews picks up in chapter 8, verse 5. 
go there, it says, they serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, that is the tabernacle, uh, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. Uh, how did God do this? I don't know. What kind of a, did he lay out a blueprint? Probably not. I don't really know how this happened, but somehow, some way, on the mountain, God showed Moses a picture of what the heavenly tabernacle was like, and he says, I want you to make an earthly one like that. And you can see this in the threefold language here in the text. It says, copy, shadow, pattern. It, it's as if God wanted to give Moses a paint-by-numbers uh, earthly representation of his heavenly dwelling, and he said, Moses, go and, and you do this. Now, if you look at chapter 9, verse 1, in the first part of chapter 2, you'll see that this tabernacle was God's design for how his people were to worship him under the old covenant. Look there, it says, Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. That, that's the tent. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which, and then he goes on to describe it. But this, this was the place of holiness. This is regulated by God. This was how God wanted his people to approach him. Now, if you know the story later in the Bible, a temple was built, and the same cloud that filled the tabernacle later filled the temple. And that cloud is just symbolic of God's presence. But the point is, this is how God connected with his people. Now, if the author of Hebrews is right, that there's no longer a priesthood and that there's no longer a need for a tabernacle, well, then how is God going to meet with his people? Well, enter Jesus. John chapter 1, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, that word dwelt there, uh, it's literally in the Greek, tabernacled among us. So if you were a Greek-speaking Christian from a Jewish background, you would be reading this and you would basically read, and God became flesh and he lived in a tent among us in Jesus's flesh. That's what you would read. And then it says, and we have seen his glory. The same glory that filled the tabernacle, the same glory that filled the temple, the same glory on Mount Sinai, we have seen it. Glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus has fulfilled the shadow of the tabernacle. Therefore, we no longer need a tabernacle. And as you know, the rest of the story goes, when Jesus left, he promised to be with us in a very different way. He promised us his Holy Spirit. And so now we don't have God with us, we have God in us. And one day, when he takes us home, we will be restored to a place that was better than the temple, better than the tabernacle, better than the garden. We will be with God in a truly special way for all of eternity. Okay, subpoint number two, sacrifice. So we, we know a little bit about the tabernacle now. Not a lot. There's, if we could nerd out on the tabernacle, okay, and maybe we're going to do that some other day. But one of the things that you need to know about the tabernacle is, is what happened inside there. The, the most important thing that happened in the tabernacle was what happened on the Day of Atonement. Um, that was the yearly sacrifice, the yearly propitiation for the sins of the people. Now, there were other sacrifices that took place in the tabernacle throughout the year, but this day was the most important day. On this day, the high priest would offer a sacrifice, first on his own behalf, and then on behalf of the nation. 
And it was a very bloody affair, and it was necessary. Blood was important. It served as a constant reminder that the price of sin is death. You remember when God made a covenant with Abraham, the Bible actually says that he cut a covenant. He cut the animal in half and had one piece of the animal on this side and another piece on that side, and God symbolically passes through the animal, and then Abraham passes through the animal, and what that's supposed to communicate is if you're not faithful to this covenant, you will die. You can see this whole thing laid out in chapter 9, verses 6 through 7. It says, these preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, that's the holy place, uh, performing their ritual duties. That's preparing to get ready to enter into the most holy place. But into the second, most holy place, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. Okay. So it seems like this is a pretty good system, right? God is holy, man is sinful, there's a problem. They can't coexist. So what is God going to do? Well, he institutes this, this system of priests. The priest goes in, he offers a sacrifice for himself, and now, now that he's pure, he can mediate between sinful man and a holy God. Let's just stick with it. But there's a problem. The problem is, is that this system was never designed to be permanent. You think about a spare tire, right? Everybody has a spare tire. I don't know where mine is, but people tell me who know stuff that I have one on my truck. And I guess I'll figure it out if I ever get a flat tire. But, you know, you put a, your donut on your vehicle and you say, yeah, that's good. It gets the job done. You know, I can drive upwards of, somebody help me, 50 miles? Yeah, 50, 100, whatever. I can't drive it forever, right? But I can drive on it. And the reason why a donut is like that is because it wasn't designed to be your permanent tire, right? It was designed to be sufficient for a time until the real thing could come. Well, that's what this system was like. Look at chapter 10, verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. You see, only human blood can pay the price for human sin. The, The blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of heifers, they can never take away our guilt problem with God. Think about if I asked to borrow your car and I completely wrecked it. And then when I came back and apologized to you, I gave you a hot wheel and said, okay, here's my atonement. Here's my payment for what I've done. You would say, first of all, awesome hot wheel. But second of all, justice has not been served, right? I mean, they're kind of the same thing, but not really. Okay, what you want from me is a real car, not a substitute. That's kind of what it was like to offer animal sacrifices up to God to try to pay the price for our human sins. It's just not sufficient. And if these sacrifices can't take away our sins, they also can't cleanse us of our guilty conscience. Look at chapter 9, verse 9. This is something else that the author of Hebrews talks about. So 
So after the little parenthetical comment there, he says, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Well, what does he mean here when he says that our conscience can't be perfected? Well, one of the main things that keeps a sinful man from approaching a holy and righteous God is the effect that sin has on his consciousness, right? Our conscience, this built-in mechanism that God has given us, it tells us from the first moment that we sin that we're not okay with God. Now, we cannot fix that conscious problem unless we get rid of our sin problem. So if these sacrifices can't take care of our sin problem, then they can't fix our conscious problem. And if our conscious problem is not fixed, then we'll never be able to approach God in confidence and joy as God has intended for us to worship him. So there is a dual problem with this system. Why do the priests have to stand perpetually? Why did he have to go in over and over and over and over again? Because these sacrifices can't fix our sin problem. What they did do was remind us of how sinful we are. They served as a constant reminder of sin, but they also did something else. They pointed us forward to Jesus. You know, it's, it's sometimes you just need to have something be insufficient You just have to get by on something over and over and over and over again to really appreciate something truly sufficient when it comes along. Uh, I think about, when we were in the jungle, we had the cheapest possible, you know, we were on like a, missionary budgets are like up here, we were down here, and so like we bought the cheapest Peruvian pans in the middle of the jungle that you could buy, okay? And trying to cook eggs on that bad boy was a serious no-go, okay? You basically had to deep fry them in oil in order to, get them, to keep them from sticking to the pan. Anyways, I'm going somewhere with this. Uh, the point is, is that we got by with those pans for a couple of years. Uh, when we came back to America and we got our first nonstick pan, I just hit that bad boy with a little bit of Pam and fried an egg on it. I was like, this is amazing, right? I had to get by on something that was completely insufficient for such a long time before I could see the value of the true thing. And that's what we see happening here. Now, I think you can see uh, three separate places in this morning's text where it talks about how Jesus is our perfect sacrifice, where he is the fulfillment of all these insufficient sacrifices. Look at first at chapter 9, verses 12 through 14. It says, he entered once for all into the holy places, so not year after year after year like earthly high priests, and not by the means of of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God. And that's the language of the Old Testament sacrificial system. You needed a lamb without blemish. If that's true, then he can purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Flip over to chapter 10, verse 14. There you see, for by a single offering, not not yearly, not repeated, a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And then go down to chapter 10, verse 18. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. In his first epistle, Peter says the same thing. He says that we are redeemed from our sins by Jesus 
the spotless lamb. Jesus was the true and better sacrifice. So these Jews, who are also Christians, who are considering going back to the Old Testament sacrificial system in the temple, the author of Hebrews is telling them, you can go back, but there's no longer any sacrifice there for you to go back to. Jesus is God's final sacrifice for sins. Subpoint number three, the covenant. Uh, now, if, if you're new to the church, you probably haven't caught on to our pocket-sized definitions, but that's these little things that we give to try to help people uh, understand and remember theological terms that, that uh, can kind of be like Christianese, that can be a little intimidating but shouldn't be. Uh, one of the most common pocket-sized definitions we have in this church is that of covenant. A covenant is just a relationship grounded in a promise. A relationship grounded in a promise. Okay? Now, under the old covenant, when God established a relationship with his people, okay, that was grounded in a promise. And you remember what that promise is, right? I will be your God and you will be my people. But like with any covenant, there are curses and blessings that go along with that relationship. If you follow me, Faithfully, according to the promise that we've made to one another, then things will go well. If you don't, if you disobey, if you wander, if you stray, there will be curses. The whole reason for the priesthood and the sacrificial system and the tabernacle was because God knew that his people, because of their sin, would not be faithful to their covenant. He knew that they would be disobedient and therefore bring about covenant guilt. And so he gave these things as a way to deal with that guilt. So, does that mean that there was something wrong with the covenant? Does that mean that, that God doesn't know how to design a covenant? If, if the priesthood has passed away, and the tabernacle has passed away, and the sacrificial system has passed away, and all of that was connected to God's original covenant, what does that say about the covenant? Well, I think it means that the covenant is passing away. But that presents a problem. Because God is a covenant God. That's how he relates to people. Everybody is off living their life. They're sinning. They're not thinking about God. God comes and grabs them up by the nap of their neck and he says, hey, I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. And that's my promise to you. And there's, you know, it's not, like a, it's not like a man proposing to a woman and the woman goes, oh, I don't know. I don't think I'm ready for it. No, that's not the way it works, right? God establishes unilaterally a covenant with his people. So if the old covenant is passing away, then that must mean that God is replacing it with something new because God is always a covenant God. And that's exactly what chapter 8, verse 13 tells us. Turn there with me. It says, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So the new covenant is better than the old, but why? What makes the new covenant new? Well, look at, look at it. It says in chapter 8, verse 6, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is, that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better. Okay, well, why is this new covenant better? Since it is enacted on better promises. So let's, let's boil it down, make it real simple. Sean, real quick, in one sentence, help me out here, buddy, for my notes. What makes the new covenant better than the old? Well, it's grounded on better promises. Well, what are those promises? 
The promises of the old covenant were, if you follow me faithfully, then I will bless you. If you don't follow me faithfully, you will experience covenant curses. Okay, that's a fair promise, but it's not like the greatest promise, okay? So what is better about the promises of the new covenant? Well, you can see as the author of Hebrews in chapter 8 lays out the terms of the new covenant. Now, what's interesting is that he's quoting Jeremiah here. So this new covenant, it's not like something that like, that like when Jesus got here, God was like, you know what? I don't think this old covenant's really working out. I wonder if I should get to work designing a new covenant. It's not like God got together, you know, with the angels and they developed like a brain trust to figure out a way to improve the covenant, right? No, this was God's plan all along. And we can nerd out on that as well, but we're not going to for the sake of time this morning. But, but we will look at these verses, okay? Starting in verse 8. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Okay, so we see there's a very different covenant here, okay? For they did not continue in my covenant, so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. That's kind of the way the old covenant worked. They didn't show any concern for me. I didn't show any concern for them. That's how the covenant stipulations functioned. Now, verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they will be my people. You see that same promise that God made? People ask, does, is God changing? I mean, there's an old covenant and a new covenant with different stipulations. Does that mean that God is changing? No, the promise has always been the same. But how he accomplishes that promise is changing. And how is it changing? Well, before God's law was written on stone and given to the people and it had to be mediated to them through priests and prophets. But this new covenant is going to put, be put directly on their hearts and minds. There is no longer any need for any stone tablets or a priesthood to teach it. Verse 11, And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. In the old covenant, you had a group of people who were all connected to this covenant, and not all of them were believers. We've said it before, we'll say it again. In the old covenant, people were ethnically, religiously, and politically part of the Israelite community. What that means is, not, is that not everyone in the Israelite community actually had the faith of Abraham. There were some people there who were just ethnically Jewish, but they were not spiritually Jewish. But what the author of Hebrews is saying here is that uh, unlike in the old covenant where one member of the covenant had to go to another member of the covenant and say, hey man, obey the covenant. I need you to obey the covenant. You're not following the Lord and what he has commanded us. That doesn't happen in the new covenant because everyone in the new covenant has the law written on their hearts from the least to the greatest. There's no room in the new covenant for unbelieving members, which, as a quick aside, does away with infant baptism. Only those who have truly repented of their sins and trusted in Jesus Christ are members of the new covenant. They all know the Lord from the least to the greatest. Verse 12, For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. The old covenant had covenant curses. But in the new covenant, there are no longer any covenant curses. And the reason why is because Jesus took all of the curses of the covenant on himself for us. 
And that is why God can be merciful to us in this covenant. He is the fulfillment. He is the final promise from God. So you can see the author of Hebrews is showing these Christians, don't go back there, there's nothing for you. The, the tabernacle and the temple, the, there's no reason for them to exist anymore. And you should know that in 70 AD, God allowed the Roman Empire to come and officially destroy the temple, I think as a means, as a way of showing these Christians that for real, this system is done away with. Don't go back to those sacrifices. There no longer remains a sacrifice. And don't go back to that old covenant promise because there's a new promise and the old promise is obsolete. You can see this pretty amazingly summarized in chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Okay, that's point number one. That's the theology, okay? That's all the, that's all the stuff behind the stuff. Now, you can always tell when an application is coming in the book of Hebrews because there's a therefore. So look at chapter 10, verse 19. In light of everything that he's just said, he says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So what you see here are three points of application uh, from the author of Hebrews. Number one is that in verse 22, we must draw near to God. Okay, number two is that we must hold fast to our confession. And number three is that we must consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. Now, we've already talked about holding fast to our confession a lot uh, so far in the book of Hebrews, so we're not going to touch on that. We're just going to touch on verse 22 and 24. Um, I think the reason why verse 22 is so important, it says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Uh, one of the reasons why this is so helpful at this point in the book is because so much of the book has been basically trying to get you to make sure that you actually are in the faith, right? So much of the book of Hebrews so far has been like, hey, you better make sure that you actually believe this stuff and that you're not just deceived and that your heart isn't growing hard and that sin hasn't taken advantage of you, right? So you better examine yourself and make sure that, that you're actually a Christian, that you're actually following Jesus. What I love about verse 22 because we need that. There are people, especially in the Christian South, you've heard it a thousand times, but in the Christian South, we need to be told to like examine yourself. Make sure that you're not just a Christian because your dad was a Christian and your grandpa was a deacon in the church, so on and so forth, right? Make sure that you actually believe this. And, and like when we get that in the book of Hebrews, we're like, yes, and amen, right? We need that. 
But there's also a cross-section of us who really struggle with assurance. We just really struggle with the idea that we can actually be saved. As a pastor, I've had conversations with people who just can't wrap their, their minds around the fact that, that God really does love them, that God really can forgive them, that heaven and all the promises that go along with it can really belong to them, that they can inherit these good gospel things. But regardless of the reasons why some of us may struggle with assurance, I want you to know that God wants you to experience full assurance. God does not want you to live in perpetual doubt about your faith. That doesn't mean you don't ever need to examine your faith. Of course you do. But that examination should lead you towards more assurance, not more fear. In chapter 10, verses 19 and 21, uh, he, gave, he gives us this summary of all that we've learned about the tabernacle, the priesthood, the sacrificial system, and the covenant. And what the author of Hebrews is doing is he's saying, listen, if all of this is true, if God has really done all of these things to assure your salvation, then be assured. Why can I have full assurance? Because Jesus has accomplished our salvation from beginning to end. And he has made a way for us to partake in that salvation based entirely on grace and not at all based on our works. Now, what you need to know about this verse is uh, that it has really almost nothing to do with prayer, right? This is one of those verses that, like, when somebody goes to teach a class on prayer, they, they love these verses, right? Since we have assurance, let us draw near to God with a true heart in that full assurance, right? And you know what? That can be applied to prayer, sure. One of the reasons why I can pray to God is because of the blood of Jesus. But that's not what this verse is about. This verse is about you being a sinner. Me being a sinner. It's about us being sinners and God being holy. And that means that we can't approach God. It means that something has to happen to fix that. Somebody has to bridge the gap. And the point is that Jesus has done that very thing. So yes, you can pray to God, but more importantly, you can actually enter into God's presence. That's just a quick aside. Now let's go on to verse 25, second point of application. It says, well, let's start in verse 24. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. If you've had a membership interview with me in the life of this church, one of the things that we talk about in that interview is gathering with the body. And one of the things I try to communicate there is, yes, when we gather, it is a clear command of Scripture. If you do not gather with the body, you are in sin. But like all of good, God's good commands in Scripture, there's a real good reason for our souls that he gives us this command, right? And what we see here is what we also have, we have this language directly in our church covenant, we will not forsake the assembling of ourselves, is that this is God's plan for us to make it to heaven, right? Stirring one another up to love and to good works. We do that when we meet together, right? And we encourage one another and we do it all the more as we see the day drawing near. So life is hard, we're suffering, we're experiencing persecution or whatever our own version of suffering may be in our day, in your family, in your context, okay? And it's, it's hard to follow Jesus, 
Now, if you're sitting there and you're like, Sean, I don't know. It, it doesn't feel hard to follow Jesus for me. I would just say, give it time. Or maybe you're just not very self-aware and you don't understand what it means to follow Jesus. Or maybe you've become like a monk and you just live in a closet. But even then, I don't see how you get past the sin in your own heart. But it's hard to follow Jesus. And you're looking at that day, the day of redemption, the day when you finally get to go home and be with the Lord. And you feel the weight of how am I going to get from here to there? I feel that when I run. I hate running. It's the worst. But I do it, okay? And anytime I run over a mile, I experience this exact phenomenon. You know, I'm looking at the finish line. I see where I am. I see where that is. And I'm like, how am I ever going to get there? That's what our Christian life is like. And one of the main things that God has built into our lives as Christians to help us get from here to there is what we're doing right here. We come a little early. We talk. We get to know each other. We spend time with each other. We gather together, we pray, we sing, we read, we listen to God's word as it, as it builds us up. Then we stick around afterwards, we continue to get to know each other, maybe we go get lunch, we meet up throughout the week, we get together on Wednesday night. This is God's community uh, perseverance plan. Now, it seems obvious, but I, I think I need to say it anyways, merely showing up on a Sunday morning, even every Sunday, is not obedience to this command. It is completely possible for you to show up to church every single Sunday and be completely disobedient to this clear command of Scripture. God is not asking you to obey the letter of the law. He's not asking you to be a Pharisee. He's obeying, asking you to obey the spirit of the law. And the spirit of the law is we gather together with purpose, with intentionality, with heaven and, and, and perseverance on our minds. And that has some very obvious implications for all different kinds of people that come to church. For the come late and leave early crowd, the members of the church who try to sneak in after maybe some of the songs and the prayers that they don't particularly care for are over with, and then they sneak out before they have to talk to anybody? That's not obedience to this command. And, and more than it not being obedience, it's not loving. You're not loving your brother. And your, we need you. And you need us. And you're really shortchanging everyone in this whole scenario when you do that. <coughs> Closely related to that, slightly overlapping, uh, is uh, the money as a substitute for ministry group in the life of the church. <laughs> we don't have a lot of that in this church. Uh, we need more doctors and lawyers and stuff like that. But uh, I've seen it in other churches. I've, I've been a member of these kinds of churches where uh, they show up, you know, Sunday and Wednesday. But like whenever there's time where like you really need to minister in the body, wherever you really need to serve, you really need to be a part of this whole corporate salvation plan, they're not there. But they will write some big fat checks. Well, friends, if, if, if that's you or if you think it could be you, let me just tell you, we don't need your money. We don't need your money. Now, I'm not talking about from an accounting perspective, okay? And I'm not telling you not to give because that's also commanded in Scripture. But what I am telling you is that theologically speaking, we don't need your money. You see, the God of this church is the God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Whatever need we may have, we trust that God will be faithful to supply that need. He's never failed us, and he never will. 
So if you want to show up uh, a little late and leave a little early and you never want to love anybody and you never want to be loved by anybody but you want to feel good about yourself because you write a check and then head out, you should probably find another church. Or you should repent and start following Jesus faithfully in the life of this church. You know, uh, in our last members meeting, we gave a budget update, and praise God, the, the church's budget is doing uh, pretty well, especially considering the fact that we have less than 40 members. It's amazing. Uh, and what it showed me was like, man, getting money is not hard, right? Getting money to support gospel ministry is not that difficult. But you know what is impossible for me to find? It's not impossible, according to man. But with God, all things is possible. But it's really difficult to get people to repent of their sins. It's really difficult to find somebody who will sacrifice their Friday night to go sit and pray and cry with another member of the church. It's really difficult to find someone who's willing to receive a loving rebuke from a fellow church member because they know that it is for their spiritual good. But this is what God wants from us as a church. If we have that and we have no money, we will be okay. If we have a ton of money and we don't have that, we will not be okay. Also closely related to this is the church parasite. You know what a parasite is, right? It just latches onto a host and it feeds and it feeds and it feeds and it never gives back. We have that in the church. People who love to come, they get filled up by good preaching and teaching of the word, but they never want to join. They never want to unite themselves to the body. They never want to have to serve and sacrifice, give up their time, talent, and treasure. We also have the church hoppers. You know, people who just love to experience different churches. Parents, I think this is a major application for you. I think one of the biggest ways you can guarantee that your children grow up to be unbelievers is by checking the box on church but not actually being the church, right? When you're here in this church and you are actively praying, actively reading scripture, actively listening to the sermon, actually loving your fellow church members, building relationships, giving your time, talent, and treasure to these eternal souls that will live forever, when you are cognizant of these gospel realities in the life of the church and you live like they're true, that will do infinitely more for the life of your children than the consistency of your devotionals or you're just showing up on a Sunday morning. What this also means is that there's no such thing as an internet church. There's one church in town that brags about having three campuses, one of which is their uh, internet campus with over 5,000 members. In this morning's Sunday school, uh, we talked about what it means to be a community. Well, I'll tell you what. You cannot be a community unless you can look somebody else in their eyes, unless you can see their flesh and blood. I can't cry with a fellow church member through the internet. I can't hold her hand. I can't come and babysit your kids. I can't bring you food like a member of this church did for me and my family when my wife was sick. I can't do that through the internet. I can't hug you through a computer screen. All of this is in the language of obedience, but more than that, it needs to be rooted in the language of love. Do we love one another? I love the members of this church so much and sometimes it kills me when I see members of this church not love each other as well as they should. 
And one of the ways that we do that is we treat Sunday morning and Wednesday night and other times casually. But I love you so much that I'm not gonna let us do that. I'm gonna drive this point home as your pastor every chance that I get until you either begin to understand what God's word says about it or you fire me. But I love you enough that I'm not going to let this be pushed to the back burner and let this turn into a social club. Let me say it again. This is not a social club. If you want a social club, you can find one indicator. You don't have to look far. You can choose from the VFW, the Legion, uh, American Legion, and the Elks Lodge. You can go down to the bowling league and find people there. You can go chase Pokemon in the park here with the really cool people who do that. You can be a part of the brewery guys scene or the scene at Moe's Barbecue or the pool hall. You can go hang with the Alabama fans or the rich people who do rich people stuff that I don't really understand. Or you can be a hunting guy. Or you, you can find a social club. But this is a place where people are redeemed by Jesus Christ. And because of that, we are connected to one another. And we love one another. And we're going to spur one another on towards heaven. If that doesn't interest you, There are a number of churches where you can go where they're just happy for you to show up, write a check, and then leave. Now, right after verse 26, the author of Hebrews hits us with the last major warning. He says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Uh, one of the things that people misunderstand about this verse is they think it means that if you, if you get saved and then you lose your salvation, that you can't be re-saved again. Well, we've talked about that at length. There's no such thing as losing your salvation. That's, that's not what this verse is about. Remember the context. What he's saying is, you've come to Jesus, and now you're considering giving up on Jesus and going back to the temple to offer sacrifices. What he's saying is, there are no sacrifices left. So don't go back. This verse, I think, very clearly shows what we have been saying is the summary of all of the book of Hebrews. Jesus is God's final word of salvation. So listen to Jesus. One more thing to look at and then we will close. Chapter nine, verse 27 and 28. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Brothers and sisters, Christ, brothers and sisters uh, there are really two, two options for every single human being. Option number one, you can receive the sacrifice that Christ has made on your behalf. You can let him pay the price for your sins or you can wait for the day when you meet God when he brings his final judgment. But here's what you need to know. The day of that judgment is final. There's no going back. There's no do-overs. In the same way that Christ's sacrifice is the last sacrifice, it is the ultimate, the final sacrifice, the day of judgment will be the last day, the ultimate day, the final day. So if you're here this morning and you have not trusted in Jesus as your final sacrifice, if you're still trusting in your own works, if you're still trusting in your own good deeds, if you're trusting in anything other than the finished work of Christ, 
I want to let you know that you are in more danger than you can possibly imagine. And the day when God comes back to render his final judgment is probably sooner than you might imagine. So trust in Jesus today. No one who has ever trusted in Christ for salvation has ever been disappointed. Let me pray. Father, we pray that uh, as you have filled our hearts this morning, that we will uh, feast on the truths of your word as we go back out into the world. We pray that you will help us to listen to Jesus, to trust in him, and to find our ultimate hope in him and him alone. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.